Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. A very sleepy good morning. It's understandable. I get it. Uh, no judgment from me. Hey, if uh, we haven't met, my name is Paul, and I am the teaching pastor here. So good to worship with you. Uh, so good to sing Jesus' praises. I uh, just love and so thankful for uh, Brad, uh, his leadership there, and just, just leading us, Annie, as well. Um, if you're a guest this morning, I do want to say a very special welcome to you. Uh, so thankful that you've chosen uh, to join us and check things out this morning. Uh, if you are a guest, one thing that we'd ask, and I say this all the time for our members and regular attenders, like, yeah, yeah, we could, we could give this portion of the announcements. We have a guest card, uh, and so they're on the uh, chairs in front of you. It's a QR code. If you'd scan that, um, it'll direct you to lpguest.com. When we say that, because we'd love to connect with you. Uh, we'd love to have uh, just a connection point with you, and we'd also love to donate to one of our partner ministries, and, and you submitting that guest card allows us to do that. So if you would, that would be awesome. I also want to just give a, a reminder to the, to the church at large um, that we have uh, an app as a church, and the reason I call that out is because on a Sunday morning, each uh, message comes along with accompanying notes that are interactive. And so if you go to wherever you get apps and search LifePoint Ohio, it will uh, find that app and you can search there. I would also say then during the week, uh, part of what we want to do as a church is to say, hey, worship is not just confined to these walls, but it is everything we do throughout the week. And to help in that process, uh, we have daily devotional content for you in the app. And we also have something called the Drivecast, which is a uh, five to ten minute um, audio sort of podcast uh, six days a week, and each day has a different teaching pastor uh, from across our campuses. So just be aware of those resources that are available out there uh, for you, just so you, again, are aware of those. Well, today we are in week four of a series we've called Broken Mirrors, okay? Week four of a series we've called Broken Mirrors. I went through a rather extensive sort of explanation, again, of this series last week, and so I won't do that in, in full, uh, but essentially what we're doing in this series is we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is very much a chapter of encouragement uh, written to the Hebrew uh, church, the Hebrew people who were in persecution. They were scattered all over the place. And Hebrews chapter 11 serves as a look at this example of faith, look at this example of faith, look at this example of faith, be encouraged, keep going in the faith. And what we're doing in Hebrews chapter 11 is we're looking at these stories of faith. We're then going back in their original contexts and what we're also doing uh, is we are using this series and these stories of faith to really illustrate our five core values as a church. Okay, five core values as a church. These are things that we would say, hey, there's certainly more to following Jesus, but there's probably not less. Okay, and so the five core values, just by way of reminder, are this. We have an acronym we call GRASP, G-R-A-S-P, and then those five core values, which if there isn't a slide, it's 100% my fault, because usually I build these things, not a slide. Okay, so these five core values, uh, what happens with these is we have uh, something called gospel identity, uh, reaching priority, okay, and then we have authentic community, spiritual intimacy, and then personal ministry, all right? And so these five core values, what we do is we try and live these out as the body of Christ, okay? We live these five core values out as the body of Christ, uh, and they, again, are very much how we uh, can say, okay, what are some of my next steps in faith? So I will say uh, this morning, since we're in week four of this series, what we should be is in the S, which is spiritual intimacy. But in reality, we're going to be in the P, personal ministry, which makes the acronym not GRASP, but, but GRAPS. Uh, which sounds like an intestinal problem of some kind, right? And so that's where we're headed. And I, I will say, I think, um, I think we might have a version issue uh, with the notes and the slides today. 
All right? And so bear with me as we, as we sort of go through there. I think, I think that's what's happening. And so uh, what I will uh, then say is when it comes to personal ministry, I think there are two really important things uh, that we have to, have to understand. There are two key words, personal and ministry. A lot of times when we think about what personal ministry is, when we think of the word ministry, what we think of often is people like me. People who are full-time, vocationally in, if you will, ministry. Okay, That's what we often think of. But the reality is, the Bible is clear that if you are saved, if you are a person uh, who has faith in Jesus, we are all saints, if you will, and we all have the work of ministry. Now, you might push back and say, well, I'm no saint, but according to the Bible, you are. So again, congratulations there. That's a big identity step for you. You are viewed as holy and blameless through faith in Christ. And what that means is you have a personal ministry, personal work to do. Now, my job, as, as the uh, Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, is, is, it says this in, in verses 11 and 12. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. What that means is, again, if we're all saints, we all have a work of ministry. Ministry is not a profession. Ministry is really a lifestyle, right? And personal ministry means we all have a role to play, right? Every believer in Jesus has an important role to play in the work of ministry. And so then the question is, well, what, what is my work? What, what, is, what, what am I supposed to be doing? And what we're going to do throughout the rest of our time this morning is we're going to look at an example of faith that then teaches us a little bit more about this core value of personal ministry, okay? And so to do that, uh, we're going to be in Hebrews, as I said, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 32 through 34. Before we engage in that, uh, I do want to pray for us, all right? Father, we trust you this morning. Uh, we need your help this morning. Uh, would you fill this place, as, as Brad has so beautifully prayed, with your spirit? Uh, would you interpret the groanings of our souls as you promised to in your word? Would you make this word that you promised to be living and active just that this morning for us? That we would be a people shaped and transformed by your word. We need you, Lord. We love you. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Ephesians 11, uh, verses 32 through 34 say this, and it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to fight. All right, again, this is an encouragement to say, hey, remember these heroes of faith. Well, we have seven different names, and then we have nine different examples of things these people did. And so there's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation with these names, if you will. Uh, we looked at Samson in week two of this series, and we saw we could probably attribute stop the mouths of lions with Samson, right? But again, you, you could probably apply these, these sort of examples of what they did to numerous people. What we're going to do this morning is we're really going to look at the story of David, who you could probably apply numerous of these things to David. Well, David actually killed lions. Uh, David uh, was made strong out of weakness. He became mighty in war. He put foreign, foreign armies to fight. David did all of these things. And so what we're going to do is look at one particular story of King David, who is remembered, flawed as he is, as the greatest king in Israel's history, a man after God's own heart in the direct family line 
of Jesus. And so if you have a, script, a copy of the scriptures with you, you can turn to 1 Samuel 17. All right, 1 Samuel 17. Uh, for now, we'll have the text to you. When we get more to an application point, that's where I think we're going to have some issues with the slides, and so we might just have to nix those, but we will go from there. So uh, 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 3 for us. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah. Uh, Ezekah. There we go. Look, just say it with confidence and keep moving. Anyway, in uh, Ephesus, wow, that's a tough one. Ephesidimim and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up uh, in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood in the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. All right, so um, sorry for my terrible pronunciations, but here's essentially what's happening. In this point in Israel's history, Israel is its own nation. Uh, what we see leading up to this point is God is really supposed to be the king of Israel, but the leaders of Israel, they go to Samuel, Samuel, who is the prophet of God, and what they say is, hey, we want a king like everybody else. And this is really a rejection of God as their king, as their Lord. Samuel, uh, in, by the instruction of God, agrees to this, and they find a guy named Saul. Saul is portrayed as this tall, handsome, very clearly the guy who is perceived externally as going to be a great leader. Well, tragically, Saul, he falls short. He disobeys the direct commandments of God, and God really rejects him as the king. What happens then is that Samuel is instructed to go to find this guy named Jesse and anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king of Israel. He goes through all the list of sons. Finally, there's sort of the runt of the litter, if you will, this young kid named David. David is anointed as the future king. And David is serving sort of privately. And so then we, we sort of shift back to the text we just read about. Israel at this time, while David is anointed king, Saul is still functioning as the king. Saul is still leading the army. And what's happening is they are, they are battling this nation called the Philistines. And in particular in this passage, uh, they're at the Valley of Elah. And I have a picture for you just so you can uh, sort of imagine what this looks like. And so on the left-hand side, you see it's sort of a hill in the distance. And on the right-hand side, you see a hill. What, this is the actual uh, location. I love when the Bible gives us really specific details, even if I butcher the names. Uh, you can say that it's a real place, right? And so what we see here is that the Philistines are on one hill. And the Israelites are on the other hill, and, and there's this valley in between, and nobody seems to want to charge down the hill into the valley because suddenly then you've lost a strategic position. And so that's the context we're in. That's really what is happening. So we pick things up in verse 4. It says this, And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. So out comes this guy from the camp, Goliath. We've heard about this Goliath, and it says that, that he's six shekels, uh, if you will, in Height And so, you know, what, what does that mean? Uh, it means essentially a six cubits, excuse me, six cubits in height. A cubit is about 18 inches. And so Goliath, this brother is nine feet tall. He's been packing away the Wheaties. And I think sometimes when we hear things like that, we're like, really? 
Like, is that true? And, and we always have to remember the Bible is trustworthy and true. And I think sometimes it's helpful to have historical references. And so less than 100 years ago, there was a guy alive uh, who was 8 feet 11 inches tall. That's not, like, that's a real photo. Right? And so there, there's real people, right, this tall. So Goliath is this giant of a man. He comes down into the valley incredibly intimidating. It gives all of these physical examples of his power and his strength, and, and there's real fear. And so we pick up then the text from there in verse 8. It says this, He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw, uh, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So this brother comes out, comes down that valley, right? You saw that picture, and he starts screaming threats. And his proposition is, hey, your best guy against me. And again, strategically, from a military sense, this would have avoided great bloodshed in a sense, but it was really, really risky. You're going to have a one-on-one death match. Whoever wins the death match wins the war and becomes the slave of the other nation. Well, Israel hears this, and they are terrified. Now, from here we see the scene shift. We're going to jump to verse 22, and we see the scene shift, and I'm going to at least going to shift the scene for us, and we shift to David. So all of this is happening in the Valley of Elah, and now here is David, verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And so here's essentially what's happening. David's father, Jesse, says, hey, I want you to, to, to check in on the battle. I want you to check in on your brothers because his brothers were at war. David was really too young to be in the military at this time. And he says, I I want you to check in on things. David at this time has been tending sheep. Uh, He's been sort of in the background doing various things. And and, uh, his father, Jesse, says, you know, take take the lunch boxes, little David, and run up to the battlefield and see what's happening, right? And so David, he leaves the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion of Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Right? And so David then arrives on the scene. He sees these two armies. He sees this giant in the middle of the valley, and he hears, I defy the ranks. I defy the armies of God. So what then happens Next, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Right, David hears this and it disturbs his soul. He's like, no, no, this shouldn't be happening. This guy shouldn't have the power to make us this terrified. This guy shouldn't be being able to say these commands and nobody do anything about it. It's really about the honor of God in this moment for David. Jump down to verse 31. It says this. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And so David is essentially saying, hey, we got to do something about this, right? So somebody's got to do something. The, The army hears this. They report back to Saul, who is the king, 
And then we get Saul's response in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and sent to him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Right? He's been a man of war from, you've had no chance. You're like a little kid. Like, how could you possibly think that you can beat this giant, this man, Goliath? Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. What happens next is Saul tries to outfit David with his armor. It's way too big. And David's this little runt of the litter kid. Way too big. And David says, No, no, I can't go and fight in this. He, He takes off all of the armor, and he takes his slingshot, he takes a rock, and then he goes walking. Just imagine this. Again, real people, real history, real moments. Imagine you're the army of Israel, and for 40 days, for 40 days, this man has been terrifying you. And then all of a sudden, you see this little kid with no armor walking down the hill toward Goliath. And you've got to be thinking, he's out of his mind. He is going to be slaughtered in a second. Well, Let's pick the text up in verse 44. It says this, The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Sorry, it's violent and gruesome, I know. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with his sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you you into our hand. David sort of counters the threat of the Philistine. He says, no, this is the reality of what's going to happen. Prepare yourself. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. You know, every time we read Old Testament narratives like this, and I've heard a lot of folks say, man, I read the Old Testament, it's so violent. Like, why is it so violent? Is God an angry, violent God? No. Death, war, battle, gruesome details in the Old Testament serve to illustrate spiritual points and realities. David's entire point of fighting here was to say, no, I'm going to prove that there is a God in Israel who does not fight by the power of the sword, 
but he fights in a different way. And yes, David kills Goliath, but again, it's a point to say that God is more powerful, God is more able, God is stronger. And so today, you and I, when we see injustices happening, we don't go out brandishing swords or guns or whatever to fight the enemies of God. No, we fight in a different way. We fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. We fight in the name of Jesus to save people and transform their hearts eternally, not just win a physical battle, right? I think when we read the Old Testament, we have to see that. Yes, there is much killing and war in the Old Testament, but it serves as a spiritual point. When Israel is exiting out of Egypt, and and in the book of of Joshua, we see this battle after battle after battle. It's a spiritual uh, sort of example. They actually happen. I want to be clear about that. But it's an example to say, like, hey, you need to set yourself apart to be a holy nation. There is no sin that should be in your ranks. Do you see the example I'm giving? And so here is where I would say that the slides are going to be off. And so I'll say we'll do no more slides for, for the rest of our, of our time together because, again, there was a versioning issue, and that's, that's my bad. So what, then what do we do with this? Right? What, what do we do with this? And how, then, does this relate to personal ministry? Again, this crazy battle, how in the world does that relate to personal ministry? Well, I think the first thing we need to see here is that intimacy has to be the foundation of activity. Intimacy with God must be the foundation of activity. Now, why do I say that? Well, I want to refresh us a little bit. If you go back and you look at verse 36, it says this. It says, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David has a holy discontent with what he sees happening. The intimacy that David is revealing here is actually a reverence for who God is. It's a little bit similar in the New Testament when Jesus walks into the temple and he sees people buying and selling goods and he sees this and he says, no, like what are you doing? He starts flipping tables out of a holy anger to say this is not the way things are supposed to be. And so when David sees this man, a man who has been created by God in Goliath, and he sees him defying, blaspheming, trying to cut down the glory and the power of God, it fires him up to say, no, nobody should be allowed to mock our God. And then he looks at the rest of the camp of Israel and he says, what's wrong with you guys? Why are you allowing this evil to essentially, right now in these 40 days, what you're showing this guy is that God isn't all that powerful, God isn't all that real, because you don't have the faith to do anything. And so David's first form of intimacy here is rooted out of reverence. And so we see that again in the Psalms. David over and over and over again is talking about the glory, the power, the majesty of God. And so I would ask us, what is our view of God? Is our view of God limited to an hour on a Sunday morning? Or is our view of God shaped by personal time with him, studying the word of God that is living and active and will shape and transform your heart. And what is happening here is before anything happens, before any activity of David, it's first this intimate reverence for God that then shapes, essentially, his activity and informs his activity for God. I think that's the first form of intimacy. The second form of intimacy with God, I think David reveals here, as again, we're asking the question, what does this do with personal ministry? And that the point really is that, that 
personal intimacy with God must come before activity. The second thing, verse 37, it says this, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David's intimacy with God is rooted in experience. Right? David's intimacy with God is rooted in experience with God. How does David have such ridiculous confidence that God's going to save him? He's done it before. Over and over again, when David was a shepherd and this lion comes, again, the brother is crazy, right? But he doesn't back down. He's like, no, God has got this. He gets a club and he beats the lion and kills it. I mean, that's just crazy. But it's rooted in faith. And David acknowledges the fact, this wasn't me. I'm not the one who had the strength to do this great thing. I'm not the one who had the power to kill this wild beast that could just shred me in seconds. No, God has the power. I am merely the instrument and the vessel that is revealing the glory of God in a battle that I should have no chance of winning. Intimacy rooted in reverence, intimacy rooted in experience. So again, the question for us is, okay, do we have a reverence for who God is? And how often, excuse me, how often do we look back on our lives and count the experiences that we've had with God where he has carried us through? Like, I say this quite a bit, but the fact, and some of us say, well, my story's boring. If you are saved, your story is not boring. God ransoming you, that's how the language God used. God ransoms us from the dominion of darkness. Like, that's epic. You are a, a prisoner in this dark world ruled by Satan. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And the gospel says that Jesus came, rescued you, brought you to life. You weren't breathing. He said, no, I'm I'm making you alive spiritually. I'm rescuing you out of this dominion of darkness. That's an epic story. Do you think about it in that way? That you have been transformed into a new person, into a new creation in Christ. So I think, again, we see those two things. Intimacy has to come before activity. The second thing I want to say is that faithfulness in the small things often leads to opportunities in the big things. I think in our culture, we very much look forward to what's next for me and not very much what's right in front of me. I think this is particularly important for young people in the room. We look at, I want to be this, I want to be that, I want that title, I want that amount of money, I want those possessions, I want to get there. And as we're striving to get there, what happens is we neglect the very things that God has placed in front of us to be faithful in, in the moment. And again, I see this from David. David, who had been anointed the king, we see him then shepherding a few sheep, We see him then being the lunch boy. Again, this is just sort of a degrading thing. Like, I would imagine he would have wanted to be on the front lines, but instead he's like, hey guys, got your lunch, you know? Like, it's just sort of, he's he's sort of a nobody. And yet he is faithful in the moment. And it says that he placed someone else in care of the few sheep. Even as he's stepping into this next thing, he's making sure that what was his responsibility is covered, is good, and is taken care of. And so I would ask us, the responsibilities that God has set before you, are we doing them faithfully, diligently for the glory of God, or are we looking forward to what's next, and is that revealing in us a discontent for what God has given us? Any job that we have is a gift and a grace from God. And you might say, Paul, you don't know my job. I don't. You're right. It may be miserable, 
And yet, when we do things faithfully, even in the misery, that reveals glory to God. Now, I'm not, also, I'm not saying you can never apply for a different job. I'm not saying you can't desire other things, but what I am saying, and I think you'll see this, if you work really, really hard and diligently and faithfully in what you're in, the opportunities are going to come. People will notice that. They will see your faithfulness, and they say, I want to entrust you with more. There's a verse in the New Testament, right? Um, I think it's in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Again, I don't have my notes in front of me on this one, but it says, look, if you're faithful in a little, much will be given to you, but if you are not faithful in a little, you'll be unfaithful in a lot. And so if you want a lot, you need to be faithful first in a little. Now again, what does all of this have to do with personal ministry? Again, we have to remember that all of us, we have a role to play. If, again, you are a believer in Jesus, you have a role to play. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, that's really where this value stems from. That's really where this value is, is discussed. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, it talks about one body. We are one body made up of many members. Each member has its own function. And again, I'm quoting this, and I'm probably misquoting it, so please extend me some grace this morning. But the concept here is that one body has many members, and each member has its own function. What that means is that you have a function within this thing we call the body of Christ. And in that, it's really important to understand that the body of Christ is the church. The church is not confined to the four rectangular walls of this building. Yes, I say this all the time, but we live in a culture that says, you want to come to church, and what we mean is this building. Yes, the church gathers here, and we sing Jesus' praises, and we worship, but the church is not defined and limited to these walls. And so when we go out of these walls, the question is, okay, what is my function within these walls? What is my function outside of these walls? How do I function as a physical member, an important piece of the body of Christ and it's not just for us. The body of Christ goes out into the world, serves the world, which then points people to Jesus, right? And so if you are not functioning as a member of the body of Christ, if you're saying, I believe in Jesus, but I'm doing nothing, that is unbiblical. It is. I don't know that's a harsh statement to make. And I want to be really careful as I make that statement because intimacy has to come before activity. The last thing I want you to do is start serving somewhere out of duty Serving somewhere out of obligation, and that's a really fine line to walk. Think about this this way. A lot of us in the room are married. We have a spouse. I want you to imagine for a moment that you see your spouse for one hour a week. You're not going to bed in the same bed. You see him for one hour a week. And then I want you to imagine that you do all this long list of chores, these things around the house. You clean or you go to work. You, you do all the dishes. You do all these various things. At some point, if you are disconnected from the relationship with your spouse, the activity that you do for your spouse will become drudgery and duty, and you will begin to resent your spouse. But if you have an intimacy with your spouse and you know each other and you uh, come together and you, and you all of these different things, if there's an intimacy, the, the activity is not drudgery and duty, it's service and love in a joyful heart. The same is true for our relationship with Jesus. We cannot go run off and do a bunch of activity unless we first have an intimacy with Jesus. Now, in this body of Christ, I think sometimes, this, when I say this, I, I mean us here this morning, I think sometimes it's really easy to stand on this stage and just say, this is wrong, this is wrong, do better, do better, do better. I actually really want to encourage you about being the body of Christ, because church, we have, we have been, and, and I, Lord willing, will continue to be the body of Christ. The thing about being the body of Christ is it, it looks after one another. It says, what, what, does, what, does my, what do we need as the church, as the body? 
And again, we, we've talked about this a ton, but starting in November, I kept saying, hey, there's a population of our, of our body that is suffering right now. Our kids team and our security teams, they're serving two or three times a, a month. They're having to miss service, and, and frankly, I'm concerned they're getting burned out. And this body, us, we said, oh, well, part of the body's hurting. We can't have that. So we all got to step up. And by the grace of God, y'all stepped up. Like that is being the body. This is to say, I see a need. I see something happening. I, I want to step into that and be the body, not out of obligation, but out of the, I love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and I want to serve them. But again, being the body doesn't just exist in these walls. And I will say, there's always need. We didn't like meet the quota and it's like, nobody has to serve ever again. The point is not nobody has to serve. The point is, how can you serve for the glory of God out of an intimacy with him, right? We keep growing by the grace of God and that means we keep needing more, more volunteers, okay? So just I'll throw that out there. Just lob it again. Intimacy first. But all I have to say, so that's the body within, within the church. What about outside the church? How do we be the body outside of the church? Well, I think... Going back to David, remember he had this holy discontent that was really rooted in a reverence of God. He saw this thing happening in Goliath. He said, no, I'm not going to stand for Goliath just having sort of the run of the place and keeping us in fear. I'm not going to stand for it. I'm going to stand up and, and do something about it. Several years ago, I was at a conference, the second week in a row for a conference story. There was a, a pastor there who was uh, pastoring a church in Las Vegas. I actually do have this slide. It's at the, at the end. And he said, he said this. Uh, he put this picture on, on the slide. He said, Las Vegas is blank city. He said, I want you to fill in the blank. So Las Vegas is sin city. That's what we say. And he said, no, it's not. Las Vegas is God's city. Satan just has a stronghold. He said, no, no. Everything belongs to God. God has dominion over all things. We say Las Vegas is Sin City, and he started getting fired up. He's like, no, it's not. It's God's city, and the church needs to go and evict Satan by the power of God to say, no, we're not allowing you with this holy, reverent discontent to have your way in the world, Satan. And he said, so then that's where the church starts to be the body in the city. I think of Marion. We say, Marion is blank. We know the narratives about our city, don't we? All of the negative things, Marion's this, Marion's that, blah, 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 whatever. Marion has its brokenness, sure. So does everywhere else in the world. I think sometimes Marion's brokenness is just a little bit more visible. But that means it's a little bit easier to detect, to spot, and to be the body of Christ in the moment. And the way we do that in this church, we're not a church who starts a bunch of ministries. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. The way we serve and the way we engage in our community is through partnerships with those who are already doing it in our community. Now, that's not to say we'll never start something new. If, if God wants to do that, I don't want to say no to that. And yet our strategy as of today is to say, what are you passionate about? Are you passionate about, about preventing abortions in our city and seeing the health of, of women and families? Like serve at, Grace, at um, Voice of Hope. It's literally across the street. Like, what are you passionate about? What do you see that just sort of works in you, this holy discontent? Maybe in the context of the body, you see the next generation, and you're like, I am concerned for the next generation. View that as the Holy Spirit working inside of you for you to get involved in something and start serving out of a holy discontent for Satan taking advantage of things. 
and honestly taking advantage of our lack of, of activity and passion for what he's doing in the world. So what is it for you? What, where is there a, just a, God, this hurts my heart. And how can you begin to take a step of faith? But first, we have to ask the question, where are you with Jesus? Where are you with Jesus? If activity can't come before intimacy, the first question is, where are you with Jesus? How often are you spending time with him? How often are you in his word? Are you praying? Are you talking with others about him? When you go in various different places, is God in your heart and on your mind? Where are you with Jesus? And from there, how then can you take a next step to to be a part of the body of Christ? There are opportunities in a local context here in our church body. There are opportunities through the context of our life groups to serve our city faithfully. What is a next step for you? But first and foremost, do you know Jesus? And if you don't, would you take that step this morning? Because then an entirely new world opens up to you. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we trust you and uh, we thank you and praise you for Mornings like this where we can gather around your word and study it and allow it to shape us and move us. God, I pray that you would work in us right, holy discontent out of a reverence for you in things that we see. Maybe within the context of our local body, we just see a hole, a gap. And God, would you, by the power of your spirit, allow us out of an overflow of intimacy with you to step into that gap. Father, maybe for some of us, again, we look around our city, we see brokenness, we see pain, and we say, somebody has to do something. And when we say, God, you can do something, and God, for whatever reason, your plan for for redeeming and for saving and rescuing people out of the dominion of darkness is through faith in Jesus, and you use the church for whatever reason, you use the church as a part of that process. And so would we be the church to one another? Would we be the church to the city? Would we be a people who desperately want to see Jesus, you glorified, you saving, you sanctifying, you rescuing, you redeeming. We need you, Lord. We trust you, Lord. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.